if you go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be here this morning. We're in Colossians 4, closing out a series that we started here uh, back all the way back in July. Uh, So if you don't have a Bible with you, you should see one uh, on the chair there in front of you or somewhere near you. It's our practice here at Rivercrest to stand for the reading of of the scripture each week, and we, and we do this for a bunch of, of different reasons, a whole, a whole bunch of different reasons, honestly. Uh, and one of those is just to demonstrate uh, by our posture, by our physical posture, uh, that we are actively participating in both the reading and the hearing of God's word here together, that not one person in this room stands above any other person, but we all stand together under the Word of God, under on that foundation. So if you're willing and able, I'd ask you to stand with me now as we turn to God and His Word. This is Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice... These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke The beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the day that you have given to us. We thank you for the the freedom that we enjoy to be here. We pray now that you would open our ears that we could hear your voice. That That you would open our eyes that we might see you more clearly. We pray, Lord, that you would awaken our souls this morning, that we might draw near to you. Well, we pray that you would meet us here. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so a, a couple of Sundays ago, uh, after worship after and after lunch, and uh, we got home, it was one of those rainy Sunday afternoons that seem to be so regular these days. And so we, were, we thought, okay, this will be good. We'll, we'll try and be really low-key for a minute. Our community group was going to be coming over later in the day. So we got the boys settled in, especially our, our youngest, who, if you know him, he's sort of a perpetual ball of energy. So it's a lot of fun. 
uh, and we decided we would watch Toy Story 4, all right? So Toy Story 4. Now, if you haven't seen it, that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not about to spoil it, um, but if you haven't seen the first three, that's on you, and I might spoil those a little, all right? Um, in those movies, uh, and it ought to be self-descriptive from the name there, that the people are not the main heroes, the people are not the heroes of the story. In fact, um, but, but the truth is they're a critical piece of the story. All right. While the toys are the focus, they, they only really make sense. And, and I understand this is a Disney movie and I am I'm asking for toys that come alive to make sense. But anyway, they only make sense through the lens of them belonging to a little boy named Andy. And the main character, the cowboy doll named Woody, uh, is Andy's best friend. And Andy's sort of always there. Now, like he's not, not like a stalker. Like he's not, he's not like just peeping on Andy all the time, right? He's just, but he's always there, always sort of watching over Andy, and always trying to do, always trying to do what's best for his friend. And the reason the story works is because it really serves as this reminder for us, for really all people, of our need for the faithfulness of a true friend. That's why the story works. You see, what the movies do and, and, and is they touch on this universal fear that is so present and prominent in the world of being alone. Just back in May of this year, there was an article published in Forbes magazine by a man named Neil Howe. Now, Neil Howe is uh, the one who is credited with coining the term millennial generation. That's what he's sort of famous for. Is he made up that name, millennial generation. He's the guy who looked at, uh, uh, looked at generations X, Y, and Z and realized we were going to run out of letters pretty quick, so he lumped them all together into uh, the millennial generation. He wrote this article called Millennials and the Loneliness Epidemic. Millennials and the Loneliness Epidemic. And in that article, he makes note of a 2016 census in the UK where loneliness is pointed to, where loneliness is pointed to as the number one fear among young people. A young people being, uh, I'm, I'm 39, so we're going to say 39 and under. All right, I actually don't know exactly what the breath was, but young people, whatever you want to call young. I'm holding on to that with every, I got a death grip on young right now. I'm trying, I will refuse to release it, all right? And here's what they said, um, that this was the number one fear identified amongst young people. And the reason this was groundbreaking is because historically, loneliness has been thought of as a phenomenon that comes about later in life. But in this census, it was loneliness that was chosen most often as the greatest fear among younger people, even above things like losing a job, losing a home, or even dying. And there have been all sorts of studies, like millions of dollars, I need you to wrap your mind around this, millions of dollars have been spent all over the planet trying to, to unwrap the puzzle that is this loneliness epidemic. All the way back in March of 2015, there were researchers at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, okay, so I know that has nothing to do with you, but they were studying the impact of loneliness on carpenter ants. They got funding for that. I mean, I just, we're about to, the, I just want to say this, at the end of this service, we're going to give the members of this church and anybody who wants to be here an update on where we are financially. And yet somehow a university in Switzerland managed to find millions of dollars in funding to study the loneliness of carpenter ants. But here's what they found. They found out that the ants who were living in groups of 10 or more, their average lifespan was 66 days. 
66 days. Now that sounds short, right? But if you consider this, okay, those who are kept in isolation, those ants would only live for six and a half days. So you take an ant and put him in a group of 10, put him in the same cage as the one living by himself. They live 66 days. You put the one, put him in isolation, you live six and a half days. In the same climate, same resources of food and water and room to move around. The only thing that those ants lacked was companionship. They lacked companionship. But we don't need the ants to tell us that. And I could have saved them a whole bunch of money. In fact, if you turn into Genesis, they'd have, they wouldn't have had any problem. They could have saved a whole bunch of millions of dollars, right? Because what we know is that loneliness is not just an animal problem, but that it is a human problem. Every study, and there's dozens of these you can go and read about if you want to waste some time this week. All of these studies are just evidence for what we already know, that in every culture, that in every corner of the world, we find, we can go and find the echoes of what God declared in Genesis 2.18 when he said that it is not good that man should be alone. God said that. It's the first thing he said that was not good. He says, not good for man to be alone. And he said, I will make a helper fit for him. It's that on all of creation, he looked out at all of it. There was no dog. There was no cat. There was no ant. No kangaroo, because my son will tell you it's legal to have one of those as a pet in South Carolina. It's on his Christmas list. It's not going to happen. There was no other. Those things are ferocious, by the way. If you didn't know this, they're not. They will get up on their tail and kick you straight in the jaw. We are not getting a kangaroo. But uh, there was no other animal that was fit for the man. And so God created a helper. And the word there is literally the word ezer, which is like Ebenezer a stone of help, something foundational for man. And so God formed the woman because it was not good for the man to be alone. And so as people, as people, especially as Christian people, we know that community is not just something that might be a nice accessory for this life. Like it's not an upgrade, but it's something that is absolutely necessary. It's a design piece of what it means to be an image bearer of God. And that's just as true for us as it was for Adam in the garden and just as true as it was for Paul and the church in the first century. And what I'm going to tell you this morning, what we are going to see in this passage, a group of verses that if we're honest, we're pretty tempted to skip over. When you put something like final greetings over the top of it, people just kind of forget to read that one. They just move on. They go, well, he's talking to Tychicus and he's talking to Luke and Demas. I don't need to read that. What we're going to find in this passage, one that I think is critical to understanding this book, is that you, believer, are not alone in this. That you are never alone in Christ. It's that when God calls you into his family, you are never called as an only child. And so we're going to see three things in here today about Christian community. That's what, that's what the heading is here. You could say more about it. There's more than three things that you could say about Christian community and Lord willing, over the next couple of decades, if he continues to provide for us and we're able to be here, we're going to have more opportunities to talk about the nature of God's redeemed community. But for they, today in this passage, we're looking at these three things. So here's the first. is that Christian community <clears throat> is dynamic. Christian community is dynamic. And what I mean by that is that it's not static. It's that it's not paralyzed. 
is that Christian community has legs, it has breath, and it has life. It's, it's on the move. One of the things you'll notice when we see this list of names in these verses is that, the, by the way, there's 10 of them all together in there, which just happened to fit with the carpenter ant uh, study. I don't think they knew that, but, but Paul did. He knew they were going to do a carpenter ant study. I don't think so. The most obvious of those mentioned in here is these first two there in seven through nine. The, most two, the two most obvious are there, Tychicus, and then, and then later on Epaphras, right? And he's, and he's not just the guy delivering the letter. I think it's important to know that about Tychicus. He's not just the delivery man, though that would have, would have been a huge responsibility. Like, I don't know if you've considered that, that there was a real man who launched out from a real place and walked down a real road carrying a real letter to a real group of people in another town. That's not, a, that's not a little thing. It's, it's, never a, it's never a little thing when you're trusted with that sort of responsibility, especially this time of year. It makes me thankful for our folks who carry the mail. Can you imagine how much busier their life is in December? It's a big deal in and of itself that he was sent to carry this letter, but he's also called to read it and to explain it. One commentator said that Tychicus, uh, that as he read this letter, he was also expected to explain whatever needed explaining. He said that Tychicus was the first in a long line of expositors of this great letter. What he means there is that Tychicus was the first preacher to ever preach Colossians. That was his task, to both deliver it and to unpack it. And we see here, in here, uh, that the others living out this dynamic life of a disciple. While Tychicus was sent to carry the letter and explain it to the people, we see Epaphras in there, who was a believer from Colossae. We see that he didn't, he wasn't the one sent with it. He was actually called to stay behind with Paul. And while he wasn't sent to go back to his people, look at what he was doing there. Look at that in verse 12. You see Epaphras there in verse 12, where we, where we see that his work was uh, to struggle in prayer for his brothers and sisters. It says that, says that he was struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. And then Paul goes on to say that he's bearing witness for him. Paul is bearing witness for Epaphras. You see, Paul doesn't see prayer as a secondary work in the community of faith. He doesn't. I, I know how tempting it is. I, I know how tempting it is for us to think to see prayer as less than necessary. Some don't think it's a very glorious work to do, but it's one of the great misunderstandings of our faith that we think praying a lesser activity than going. We don't know why he wasn't sent with Tychicus. We, we don't know. It could have just been that he was in prison along with Paul and he wasn't free to go. But it didn't stop him from serving the Lord. You see, all of this is a reminder that not only is the Christian community dynamic, but it's also diverse. And it carries a dynamic message. It's that the gospel does something. I think we forget that sometimes. That the gospel actually accomplishes something. It, it, it's what stirs up the hearts of people to go and share the life of Christ in the world. It gives us this unbounding hope Christians ought to be the most hopeful people on the entire planet because we have this hope in what God can do in the lives of the broken, the lives of the hurting, the marginalized, and the afflicted. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, of reconciliation with the Father through the sacrifice of the Son is the message that can transform a life, even the life of a runaway. And that's what we see with Onesimus. 
You see him there, he's there with Tychicus in verse 9. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He, he was a man who had fled that city, who had fled Colossae, seeking freedom, seeking life. Onesimus had taken off on the run and in the process encountered Jesus and became one of his followers. He became a man Paul calls our faithful and beloved brother. And what this means is that is that as God's people go out preaching and proclaiming this dynamic message of the gospel, is that it has the power to transform people into this now diverse community. That's the second thing we see here. We see this is, a, is that the Christian community is diverse. Onesimus is just one example of that. You see, starting back in verse 10, look back at that with me, because starting there in verse 10, we get a list of six names. There's six names starting in there in verse 10. These six guys uh, are the ones who had remained with Paul there in prison. The first are Aristarchus and Mark. That's in verse 10. And then in verse 11, we're introduced to a man named Jesus who is called Justice. This probably makes sense as to why they changed his name. They're like, we're telling you about Jesus, not this one. <laughs> if, you, if you imagine somebody trying to tell somebody about Jesus and they pointed at you, it'd be like, that's a real disappointing savior, you know? Um, so we need, to, we need to change his name. Those three were what Paul called the men of the circumcision. And I'll be honest with you, that's a sort of an uncomfortable nickname to have to go by. Like if that's the patch on your jacket, I, I think I'm, I'm going to ask for a different one. But, but what Paul's saying is that they were Jewish. That's what he's trying to communicate to him. He's pointing out that within his circle, all right, within Paul's immediate circle, Within his community, there were some who were from his original tribe. And so what that means is they looked like him. They, they talked like he talked. They were circumcised like him. But there were three more names in there, too. In verse 12, verse 12, we see Epaphras. He's the man from Colossae. We actually met him in the first message in this series because he was the one who reported back to Paul that the gospel had taken root in Colossae. He was the one who came and told Paul, by the way, there's some stuff happening in Colossae you need to know about. He's the reason this letter has been written to these people. And so they have a history with Epaphras. And then in 14, we meet Luke, the beloved physician, and a man called Demas. And what that, th these guys are Gentiles. So they're not men of the circumcision, but men who are there with Paul. You, you might recognize Luke. He's pretty famous, writing the gospel, book of Acts, about a quarter of the entire New Testament. And so he is kind, Luke's kind of a big deal in the faith. And we find out here that he's a physician. And so within the diverse community, of faith there around Paul. I want you to imagine this, see this. We have a runaway slave and we have a physician. Around Paul, we have a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles. I know that doesn't mean a lot to us today, but these would have been people who had real differences to overcome, like deep seated differences to overcome. Today, we have to overcome things like styles of music or whether they wear suits and ties or whether they wear designer t-shirts up front or, or what ministries they have to offer. Those are the big divides in the church today. It is so often the case that our points of division in the church are so trivial and temporal that it's embarrassing to even admit them. But just in this list, just in this list that we see right here, just in those six names, we see the power of the gospel to overcome, to overcome ethnic divides, to overcome social divides, to overcome socioeconomic divides, and even, even to overcome 
religious divides. We see the power of the gospel to form God's people into one new diverse community. That is the miracle that is the church, at least in its truest form. It's that we are part of, that you and I are part of this supernatural body of God's people commissioned to carry a supernatural message that accomplishes a supernatural work. If you're bored with the church, you're doing it wrong. You see, there's nothing else like this thing. That's why Paul said all the way back in 3.11, this is what he said to the people, to people who he has never met. Remember, he just heard of them from Epaphras. He said, of the church, here, in this place, in this church, there is not Greek or Jew, there's not circumcised or uncircumcised, there's not barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's laying out for us this picture, for us, the transformative nature of the gospel so that just like in the ministry of Jesus, it overcomes every obstacle. The gospel kicks down every barrier. It smashes to pieces all the prejudices and all the points of division and disconnect because it takes the impossible and it makes it possible. It takes what is dead and it makes them alive. You know, this is what you and I are caught up in. I know that's not what you think when you get in the car on Sunday morning. It's not what I think when I get in the car on Sunday morning. It's not what I think when I wake up and brush my teeth on Sunday morning, when I try to get out of the house before the boys wake up and Laurie has to deal with that. I it's, not what I, it's not what I think about naturally. It's not what stirs in my heart on Sunday morning. I think we're going to church. Why? Because that's what we do. But do you, have you ever stopped to consider that this morning you're participating in something, whether you are a member here, a visitor here, wherever you are in your life, that this morning you are participating in something, something supernatural, that the God of all creation is actually speaking to us through his word. Too many of us think too little of the church. We underestimate what God has done because we get, honestly, because we get too familiar with it. It becomes too routine. We get numb to it and we lose a sense of awe, a sense of the awesomeness of what God is accomplishing among us. Listen, if you look around this room, and you can, you will, you probably already have, we all look pretty similar. We all do. I mean, even if you were to say, okay, well, there's different colors. different. Oh, we're all from the same town. We all look pretty similar. If you're from out of town, you might look a little different. I don't know. <laughs> we might look a lot alike, but I'm going to tell you, in this room, there are, about a, there are about a hundred different stories. There are dozens of different types of upbringing, dozens of different neighborhoods and cities represented here. And that's what, that's what makes the church such a powerful witness for the gospel. Now, what could we do better as a people? Absolutely. And if you think that I'm saying Rivercrest is the perfect incarnation of the church, I'm, I'm, I'm either saying it wrong or you're hearing it wrong. We got a lot of problems. You know why? We got people. 
Um, y'all about to do Thanksgiving this week with your families. You'll understand that more on Friday morning, okay? If you got people, you have problems. But if we really believe what P- Peter said in Acts 4, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Like if we really believe that, that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that it only comes through him, and if we believe that we have his name written on our hearts, it would be absolutely tragic for us not to share it with those around us. Like I don't know how... I don't know how much you have to hate someone to not share the good news of Jesus with them, both in word and in deed. In a world of epidemic loneliness, here we are, as God's chosen people, carrying with us the transforming message of a dynamic and diverse community. You think the gospel isn't relevant? Millions of dollars in study to when carpenter ants beg to differ. We are positioned here by God in this community that we might invite the lost, the hurting, the neglected, the lonely, and the marginalized into a transforming, dynamic, and diverse community. And And there's one more thing that we should see in here. And it's possible to overlook it. It's possible to ignore it, but we can't because just as the church is dynamic and just as diverse as this new community is, there's something more. It's that the Christian community is also dependable. And I want to level with you right here. The word dependable isn't really the one I wanted for this, but I had the double with dynamic and diverse, and I wanted to go for the triple on the alliteration. Um, Dependable really doesn't work, but sounds good, right? Um, What we really see impressed upon us is that the Christian community we see that it can overcome the diversity, that it overcomes the differences, and that it remains close by. It's that it endures. Just consider that in Acts 13, I want you to imagine this. In Acts 13, Mark, one of the men mentioned here in verse 10, he'd been traveling with Paul and his, and, and, and his family member Barnabas. And in the middle of that missionary journey, Mark has some, has some sort of pull back to Jerusalem, and he just up and leaves them. Whether he got homesick, we don't know. We don't know what it was. It just said, he's going back to Jerusalem. Mark left them and he returned to Jerusalem. You say, well, that doesn't sound dependable at all, right? You know, we're supposed to be working together. We're dynamic and we're diverse. And now you're telling me we're dependable. And yet the first person you point to is one who didn't stick around. And what we know, honestly, is that Paul considered this a great betrayal. Like he was deeply offended by this. They'd made plans. I don't know if they had reservations somewhere, and he bailed, and so now they've got, I don't know. But he was not happy with that. We know that it hurt him. And so many of us can relate to this, right? Anybody in here ever been disappointed? Please don't raise your hand. Anybody in here ever been let down, especially by somebody in the church? Anybody been let down by the church? Again, resist that <laughs> temptation. We've had people who... We've had people who were walking with us, who were serving with us, who were striving with us, and for whatever reason, they left and returned to Jerusalem or or wherever. We know that this moment with Mark impacted Paul so deeply that he ended up separating from Barnabas too. 
that this wound was so deep in Paul's heart that he actually not just broke off the relationship with Mark, but he, he couldn't even be around Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement. So if you can't be around a guy who's known as a son of encouragement, that's a deep wound. He had to be away from him. Even so, the point that as Paul and his team were setting off on another missionary journey, Barnabas was like, should we give him another chance? And he was like, no. Hard pass on Mark. Just let him stay over there. But again, God, God sort of specializes in accomplishing that which we think is impossible to accomplish. And here we see that Paul and Mark, this is what we see by reading the whole Bible. That's why you can't just take one piece. You've got to take the whole thing. When we find them in Colossians, we find that Mark and Paul have been reconciled together. After they'd spent all this time apart, we say they are back together because the message of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel are big enough to bridge any gap, to cross any chasm, and to reconcile any fractured relationship. It also reminds us, it reminds us that when we look in the Bible, we aren't just, we aren't just spinning the story. Like we are not PR agents for the kingdom of heaven. That's not what we're doing. We're not out recruiting new clients. We're not trying to sell a product. But we are a living, breathing body of God's people living out a witness of the transformative power of the gospel in our lives as a dynamic, diverse, and dependable community. That's why the church is God's plan of reconciliation. In the midst of the shifting sand of this world, here we stand on the foundation that is Christ. Remember, these were real people. People with real relationships. Had real conflicts. Had a real need for help. Just like us. And so the gospel is the power to reconcile me to my creator, surely it's the power to reconcile me to you. If the gospel can overcome the cosmic offense of sin against a holy God, surely it can overcome the earthly offense of sin against another flawed and fractured sinner. What we find in this passage is that as a child of the living God, as one who has been redeemed and restored and adopted into his family, is that we are never alone. It reminds us that not only do we belong to God, but in a very real and a very genuine sense, we belong to one another. Because we've all received this same grace and been called into this one family. And that's how Paul closes out this letter. Isn't that beautiful? He takes the pen from his scribe, probably Timothy. And in verse 18, we see him reminding the people of the grace of God. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. You know, grace is typically defined or described as unmerited favor. It's what we all need because we all, well, because we all need saving. We all need rescue. It reminds us that none of us, not a single soul in here, could ever hope to even, even begin to earn the salvation that we've received in Christ because you aren't good enough, because you aren't smart enough, you are not pretty enough. But the good news is that, is that Jesus is. 
So as we close out this letter and as we approach Thanksgiving this week, this final verse reminds us of just how much we have to be thankful for. What God has done in doing the impossible for us. He has won the fight for us. What a privilege it is to be called into that family. What a privilege it is to be gathered into that body with others. What a savior. (laughs) What a friend, right? What a family. Yeah, we have a lot to be thankful for. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel for the hope of the gospel, that in a world that is shattered, that is so divided right now, you have given us a sure foundation. You have given us one built on love and hope and peace. Lord, would you use your church here or wherever else we normally are for church, would you use us as a witness to the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. May people see him as they see us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.